Today I have Vivek Ramaswamy. Okay, so let me just tell people a bit about your background. Harvard undergrad in biology and Yale University Law School. Two Ivy League schools, but of course you went to those two schools because you couldn't get into the really top, top Ivy League, League school, which is my alma mater, Cornell. But hey, no shame in going to Harvard or Yale. Uh, you were a partner at an investment firm. You founded and served as executive chairman of, is it, how do you pronounce it? Royvent? Royvent Sciences. Royvent, yeah. Sciences is a biopharmaceutical company specializing in using uh, technology in developing drugs. In 2016, Forbes magazine listed you as the 24th richest American entrepreneur under 40. Really? I think if I had one-tenth one of your uh, net worth, I would be doing a lot more things with my freedom. And then you are the author of, which will be the, the launch pad of what we're talking about today. People, you have to get this book, Woke Inc. This is how I discovered Vivek. Uh, so let's start, Vivek, with the following question, personal question. What I love about your background is you're not a straight stay in your lane kind of guy. As, as you know, as you probably know, I'm a professor who doesn't sort of just stay in my lane, do only the research that I'm supposed to be doing. So you went from being in biology to being a law student, to being an investment, to founding an incredible company, to now becoming a pundit all over national media. Tell us how you were able to pivot through all of these different endeavors. Yeah, well, I, uh, I don't know that I have a lane and I don't know that I have expertise either. So, so why anyone would listen to me is... Uh, is, is a mystery to me, but if people are interested in my thoughts, I'm happy to offer them. You know, the thing I would say, God, is I've always done what I think is interesting at a given moment in time. If I'm having fun with it, I'm doing it. And when I'm done, I'm done. So it's been that simple. And, you know, I really had a lot of fun writing this book. I'm toying with the idea of writing a sequel. I think I'm still in the stage of having fun with, with playing around with ideas in the space that I've been writing about in Woke Inc., but if I stop having fun at some point, then I'm going to stop doing it. And, you know, I think that that's something that is a, is a luxurious thing to be able to say. I, I, it that is a privileged thing to be able to say. That is true privilege. And, and I'm okay to acknowledge that because not everyone is in a position in their life where they've lived the full arc of the American dream in the way that I have. But given that I've had the good fortune of doing it, I want to, uh, you know, I want to take advantage of that for, for myself in a way that, the, my luxury is doing what I want professionally when I feel like. I but want I mean, to do that it. mindset is that mindset doesn't only come from the fact that you now are, you know, you have the the freedom given your, you know, your financial security to be able to do it. I think that based on your earlier pivots, even when you didn't have that yeah. wealth, you seem to to have captured that ethos, which is if it's fun, if it if it garners me passion, I'm following it, right? Well, I haven't been wealthy for very long, but uh, I will tell you this: it. I, the, contra the people who I had in mind when I was drawing that contrast was my parents, actually. So they, they came to this country with almost no money. The thing that they did was what they needed to do to build at least a secure backdrop for my brother and I to be able to go to schools, right? So we didn't grow up rich, but we did grow up with parents who were committed to making sure that my brother and I at least got an education, which they viewed as the foundation, to get ahead in this country. And you know what? I think that they wouldn't have been necessarily free to write a book because my mom probably always wanted to write a book, but I don't think she ever had the latitude to do it because my dad was working during the day. My kids had to be picked up at the end of the day. They couldn't afford to hire help. She had to be the one to do it. And so 
I think that, that there, when I say that I have the privileges that certain people didn't, I'm thinking about my parents, for example, who came to this country 40 years ago. That being said, you know, I don't think you need a lot of money to be able to live a free life. I think, I think you do require a certain baseline. There's a certain baseline where if you have a family and you need to put food on the dinner table, you need to do what you need to do in order to put food on the dinner table. But once you've gotten beyond that, I actually think that somebody who has a, a billion dollars or somebody who has three orders of magnitude less than that are equally able to exercise freedom for themselves in ways that go far beyond money. That's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting it is because I'm for my next book uh, that's tentatively titled, the title might change, but it's a, a recipe for the good life. And so uh, in that book, I talk about all of the, you know, both the ancient wisdoms and the, the, the more current scientific research on what are the predictors of, you know, well-being, of contentment, of happiness. And, uh, you know, ha happiness is to some extent correlated with money, but it kind of has a bit of an inverted U-shape, right? Because up to a certain up to point... A I believe in the U-shape. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I went to, you know, speaking of my time at Harvard, I mean, I went to, went to school with a lot of kids who either inherited or were due to inherit a lot of money. I, honest to God, to this day, God, is I feel some level of sympathy for them, actually. I feel sympathy for a lot of people who struggle in, in economic difficulty too. It's a different kind of sympathy, but this is sympathy for a lot of people who never had the opportunity to experience ambition, to be able to experience not having had something that they didn't want. And, and you know, a lot of people may begrudge trust fund kids or whatever. I think they're kind of lost in their own ways in many, many cases too. That's not all of them. Every person's different and isn't uh, just a product of their circumstance, but it's a little bit counterintuitive for many people to understand and having gone to school with and even still staying friends with many of these people over the years, I realized that actually people may be a lot less disaffected or upset with the uber wealthy if they realized that they actually weren't that much happier and they shared some of the right. same human struggles, the fundamental struggles of the human experience, the search for self, the search for meaning, the search for purpose that anyone else does too. And I think that there's something, something unifying about that, actually, if you think about it, that the shared, the human condition permeates a wide range of human experiences and we're not as different from one another as we might think. Well, one of the reasons why I decided to write my next book, I, I never really thought of myself as someone who would write a kind of self-helpish book, but a lot of people would write to me, given that I have, you know, a, a you know, pretty large platform, would write to me and say, you know, you always seem to be so... Uh, you know, jolly and affable. And even though you're a serious professor, you always seem to be filled with passion and so on. How do you do it? Well, the secret is that when I wake up in the morning, I kind of start with this kind of rubbing of my hands because, you know, later I'm going to be talking to Vivek, whom I don't know, but he seems like a really cool guy. So that excites me. I'm going to be working on my book. That excites me. I'm going to be reading one of my students' theses and we're doing a really cool project and that excites me. So if you can find a way, now it's easy to say, you know, find your passion. But if life is short, if you could find ways by which you can at least maximize your chance of finding something that gives you passion, yeah. pursue it because our time on earth is very limited. Totally. Right? And you know, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I mean, you strike me as a guy who embraces the vivacity of life. And I think that's a, that's a gift and something you ought to be grateful for, right? Because some of that may be inborn, right? Some of that may be learned. Yes. Some of that may come from practice. Some of it may come from experience. Some of it may come from in, being inborn. And if you're born with that quality, 
that's probably the luckiest quality that anyone could be born with. Not good looks, not height, not a particular skin color, or not even an inheritance on the day you're born. If you're born with the capacity to enjoy the experiences that life gives you, that's actually much, you'd actually, I'd actually wish much more for that and wish that upon anyone more so than I would wish pleasant experiences upon somebody. Because if somebody has pleasant experiences and doesn't know how to enjoy them, they're actually worse off than somebody who knows how to enjoy any experiences, even if they tend to experience things that are less pleasant to the average population. So I think that's a gift that you're endowed with. In some ways, it's a gift that I've been endowed with too. I'm grateful for it. And, you know, I think that, you know, as long, I think that you also tend to be good at things when you're having fun in doing them. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the pursuit of excellence. And one of the things I think about happiness is in America, one of the things America gets right is we call it the pursuit of happiness, right? The pursuit right. of liberty, equality, justice for all, but, but the pursuit of happiness. And that kind of recognizes the reality that happiness isn't an end state. It sort of is a pursuit, actually. That, that, the happiness is in the pursuit itself. And I think that if we remember that, then all we have to do is is pursue it with a vivacity that maybe people like you and I bring to what we do. That maybe hopefully can can even be infectious to those who can who can you know take upon their own pursuits with a similar with a similar level of joy and fulfillment. Amen. Uh, before we get to to woke Inc., uh, you know, I'm interested if only for my own selfish personal reasons of learning about your uh, wonderful uh, endeavor with uh, Royvan, if you could tell us a bit about that uh, company, because I think it's broken up into different sub companies, each of which yeah. focuses on a sure. different cluster of diseases. Yeah. So tell sure, us it's been that. a while since I've talked about uh, on a forum like this about Royvan. I used to do that years ago when I was CEO of the company. So I was CEO for seven years. I became executive chairman earlier this year. Yes. Yeah, so Royvan was born out of my experience for seven years before that, being an investor in the biotech industry. And, and to me, it was one of these industries that was badly broken, pharma, biotech, in that it takes 10 years or more to get an average medicine approved, takes over a billion dollars, sometimes over $2 billion, depending on how you count. And you know, there's a good reason for why that's usually cited for this. There's scientific, inherent scientific risks, but it's also regulated industry. And I think that's a big part of the reality. The FDA and comparable regulators around the world make the process of drug development far more expensive and time-consuming than it actually needs to be. But I think it's only part of the story. And my thesis from years as an investor was that actually a lot of the internal inefficiencies were internal to pharma, internal to corporate practices within the pharma industry themselves. Maybe that came from years or decades of being a regulated industry. Maybe it would have always been the case. But either way, one of the things I observed, for example, is that if you're a scientist, you're working in the mid-ranks or the lower-ranks line level ranks, or for that matter, even the high ranks of a pharma company, and you discover a drug or develop a drug that goes on to succeed, save the lives of millions of people, and makes billions of dollars for the pharma company, you don't personally participate in that upside at all. Now, on the flip side, let's say you take a risk in the R&D phase of your project and, and, and you fail. Well, then you might actually face job security risks. And so when somebody's running a clinical trial where they have asymmetric personal downside, relative to their upside, they're not in a particular rush to get to the answer. Now, it's not so it's not so devious or premeditated or that direct of a causal link, but it's the conditions that are created for people to innovate aren't necessarily conditions that give them the incentives to do it fast, let alone to innovate at all. So I thought, hey, let me start a different kind of pharma company that borrows from some of the principles I've seen work in the asset management world. Pretty simple principle. 
In the asset management world, you have a model called the multi-manager platform model, where you have a portfolio manager that might, that might specialize in a sector, and he gets a cut of the profits that he makes. So why don't we make a pharma company where scientists are incentivized in that way and drug developers are incentivized in that way and make a multi-manager platform for pharma? So that's what Royvent was. That was the gist, is that you as a scientist or a drug developer or a commercial leader would get uncapped upside in the projects that you actually work on. So Royvent has 20 or has so far built 20 and counting of these pods, these what we call vants in our model. The parent company provides a lot of the tech, a lot of the basic capabilities that allow those vants, those units to do what they do. So, so the business model was that simple. The reality is like most things that you draw up that are pretty simple, uh, it's easier said than done. And, and I had my share of, of humbling learnings along the way. Uh, some of it was, was due to bad luck. Some of it was due to things that I wish I had done differently. Uh, for example, one of the first drugs we developed was a drug for Alzheimer's disease ended in spectacular failure after being a really high profile drug. And, uh, and that, was, that was an experience that tested you know, who I was as a person, who the company was as a company. But suffice to say, you know, experiences like that made us stronger. And, and thankfully, we got medicines approved. And, and I'm trying to see if I have one on my desk. I don't. But a couple of them are, uh, are approved medicines that are now in the hands of patients or that are drugs that we developed that wouldn't have made it to the finish line if it weren't for a company like ours. So that's probably what I'm most proud of. Well, what I love about the start of your story is that it, you know, it, it was a recognition of some fundamental property of that industry coupled with, you know, an understanding, some, you know, important understanding of, of human psychology that allowed you to find that niche, right? You know, I'm thinking that, you know, it came from, you know, your background in biology and maybe it wasn't. And in a sense, that kind of uh, gives me solace because as someone who is housed in a business school, uh, you know, this this would be a wonderful case study to to cover in a, you know, organization. I didn't know you're housed in a business or, school. I am housed. So so let me tell you a bit about that. my background. Okay. Yeah. So 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 I'm I'm an evolutionary slash consumer psychologist. I knew that. So what I do. Is, I didn't know that you were in business. Yes, I, yeah, so because I, I apply evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study consumer behavior, cool. and therefore I'm housed in a marketing department, and so it's it's a perfect, uh, you know, housing for me or home for me because I'm equally wedded to you know very highbrow theory, but then seeing it, I, you know, I get I get the dopamine hit seeing it practice. Right, I love when a former MBA who ten years ago took my MBA course in consumer behavior who comes back to me and says. We just had a meeting where we used some of the evolutionary things you taught us. I'm like, yes. And so I think had I been, you know, housed in a behavioral biology program or, you know, just a theoretical psychology program, those links wouldn't have been as easy to make. And so I'm, I'm in the perfect position at the business. That's program. cool. That's really cool. Well, we, we, we could have a, we could have a businessy conversation another time, uh, you know, or, or oh, today, whatever you want, you know, we, I'm. Okay. Well, let's, let's now get to this guy. Uh, now, before I ask you to give us the synopsis of the book, in my case, the reason why I wrote The Parasitic Mind is because I was someone who's been, you know, entrenched in the ecosystem called academia, where all of the idea pathogens that I describe in The Parasitic Mind originate from. And therefore, it was natural for me, at least given how familiar I was with the academic ecosystem, to write this book. In your case... There isn't a direct line as to, you know, you're a very successful founder and CEO, but yet obviously you're already starting to see the wokeism infiltrate all of, uh, you know, the industries. 
So is that what propelled you to write the book? You got pissed at some of the idea pathogens, as I would call them? So I'm not sure exactly the moment that there was a particular moment that said that propelled me to write the book. On a very practical note, what happened was in February of 2020, I wrote my first Wall Street Journal op-ed. I had written an op-ed for the New York Times in back in 2007 when I graduated from college. And then after that, it was, they published in the Boston Globe and New York Times. And then I never, I, I never did that stuff. I was in business afterwards, didn't really think about that as something I was interested in doing. But I learned a lesson along the way uh, that has served me well in my investing career, served me well in my business career as an entrepreneur, and ended up serving me well in getting me started on the journey to write this book. And that was a lesson that I learned, funny enough, in a stand-up comedy training that I did in New York for a short-lived career as a stand-up comedian, where, they, where the, the guy who, who was a very talented guy who, who taught the course said that the way to do it is anytime something annoys you, if something really annoys the hell out of you, the first thing you need to do is write that down as quickly as you can. And then you go home and think about it. And at the heart of anything that annoys you is probably a joke. There's a good joke in there. You just have to find it. And then, you know, you set it up and then you do, do your punchlines and, and that's how you do a, a stand-up comedy routine for a how-to book. Call that a lesson. Find, find the, write it down when it annoys you. Find the funny in it. Set up line, set up line, punchline. That's a, that's a nutshell cliff notes on the stand-up comedy class. Use it or lose it. Take it for what it's worth. The, the thing that I did, actually, is I applied that lesson to my business career, right? If something, I would say the same thing is true. If something really annoys the hell out of you, there's not always, but probably a good business idea at the heart of it, right? So, so the big pharma inefficiency and the incentive misalignments that I described, it annoyed the hell out of me. And in there was the kernel for, for a good business idea. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but starting in late 2019, early 2020, there was something else that started to annoy the hell out of me. And it was when every CEO in America and every prominent investor was suddenly issuing a carbon copy declaration that they would no longer be pursuing profit for maximization of wealth for shareholders, but instead would be serving all stakeholders that are important to that business, one after another. It was a domino effect. And then the Business Roundtable, which is a fancy way of saying the biggest lobbying organization for the biggest companies in America, made a declaration in, in I think it was October of 2019, where they said that the mission of the American corporation was no longer to serve shareholders, but was to serve stakeholders. And then in January, the CEO of Goldman Sachs declares from the mountaintops of Davos that Goldman would not take a company public in the United States unless it had a board that was sufficiently diverse. And then Airbnb said that it would compensate its executives, not just based on how it served shareholders, but how it served stakeholders. So there was something about this new monolithic hegemonic perspective in the American business world that kind of annoyed the hell out of me. And I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And I realized that the thing that annoyed me about it wasn't quite the thing that bothered Milton Friedman. Okay, so Milton Friedman thought about the same problem in 1970. Apparently something really similar was happening back then. It goes to show that things, history repeats itself sometimes. But the thing that bothered him most was the idea that this new trend of political and social movements infecting business might make businesses less efficient and less equipped to make products that served all people and, and delivered profits to shareholders. And he wrote a compelling case for why. And by the way, I happen to agree with a lot of what he said, 
But even after I read what he had to say, including his famous 1970 essay on this topic, I felt like that wasn't quite it. That wasn't quite the thing that bothered me. So I thought about it more. And the thing that bothered me was actually the opposite. It was the idea that not that politics or democracy was going to infect corporations or capitalism. It was actually the opposite. I was worried that corporate power and capitalism might actually infect American democracy. And at the time, now that's become a more popular line of reasoning and people say this kind of thing. At the time, nobody had really put their finger on that pulse yet. So I wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed in February 2020 just because it annoyed the hell out of me and because I wanted to. So, so I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I, uh, I didn't even know how to submit an op-ed to the Wall Street Journal. So some guy, you know, I mean, I guess I could have looked it up, but some guy said, uh, you know, here's a guy who does writing with authors. And I asked him what I should do with it. And he said, well, don't even think about publishing in the Wall Street Journal because these guys are really selective. Why don't you start with Medium? That's what I usually give people. So that was a second thing that, as a side note, just annoyed the hell out of me. So I'm like, now I'm really going to send it in. And, uh, and, and, and they got interested and they, they ran it. And, uh, and, and I've been writing somewhat regularly for the, for the journal ever since. But, but anyway, then an agent got in touch with me and, who had read the op-ed. And the op-ed actually, you know, whatever, ended up being widely read. It was one of their, one of their viral kind of op-eds. And so an agent who turns out to be, I think, be an exceptional book agent for anyone who's looking for one, Keith Urban at Javelin, I would highly recommend him uh, if, if, he'll, if he'll take a phone call with you. Uh, but I think that he was, he was a great agent, smart guy, uh, had overlapped with me. He's kind of my age, uh, you know, a year or two ahead of me maybe. He went, he, Yale guy. We had some friends in common, it turned out. But he said that you got to turn this into a book. So I said, okay, fine. I didn't think I was ever going to write a book, but here we are. Uh, I'm writing a book. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. And, and that's where the book actually came out of it. So, so descriptively, that was the mechanics of it. I think the longer answer was this had been bothering me for a while. And I really felt like somebody needed to speak honestly about the essence of what was really happening. And so maybe I wouldn't have written a book. Maybe I would have expressed it in other ways. But it was just a matter of time before I got to this issue anyway. But were you someone who was expressing your opinion regarding wokeism? when you were in the throes of your business career or were you- I wasn't really thinking about it. No, I think it was, okay. I think it was in my subconscious. But, but the thing that brought me to it first wasn't even like the word woke didn't really occur to me. It was this notion of the inauthenticity of corporate leaders, my peers, who were making declarations that in some cases I thought they might've believed and I disagreed with. In other cases, I'm sure they didn't believe, but I also still disagreed with what they were saying. That really bothered me. And that was kind of my journey into thinking about what was the content of what was moving these people to do what they were. And it turned out it was actually an infection that had infected not just corporate America, but nearly every other sphere of American life, of Western life, if I may say, in a way that revealed, I think, a far deeper issue that I eventually put my finger on. So, so the first half of the book ends up being, the first whatever third of the book or whatever, ends up being a critique of stakeholder capitalism, the mixing of the pursuit of profit with the propagation of a moral perspective for how society ought to run. And it's written from the standpoint of being actually a defense of democracy, not a defense of capitalism. But I think that became inextricably linked with the content of the philosophy that all of these corporations and indeed institutions, even beyond corporations, are pushing today, which is you know, you know, what, what we call the woke agenda. And I think that the two were deeply linked to essentialize the purpose of any institution to say that diverse institutions that may each have different purposes must be essentialized to a single monolithic philosophy. That was the same 
theory of essentialism that it brought to the theory of individual identity, essentializing each of us to a narrow set of attributes that define who we are as people. And to me, those were intimately and deeply and inextricably linked in a way that only a book of, you know, of the length of Woking, for example, could really, could really interrogate with appropriate depth and nuance. So a couple of, a couple of comments, a lot to unpack. One, I loved your answer about, uh, you know, something that pisses me off is probably a joke in there. So if I don't, I'm, you and I haven't known each other too long, but if I think you've read my latest book and maybe yep, I loved it. Each other on social media. I, thank you. I often use humor, satire, sarcasm as part of my arsenal of persuasion techniques. I noticed because you did you read? Humor. Did you read your audiobook? Was that your voice? No, that wasn't. Okay. And, and now, don't, don't start chastising me for not doing it in my own voice because Joe Rogan has already clobbered me on air for that. Okay, okay. Well, I, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, you know what? I would say you're a smarter man than I because I did it and like my voice was shot after three days of reading the book. But, but I actually wanted to do it because people know me and expect my voice and there's a lot of personal elements in my book, my personal history in Lebanon. But the the audio publisher had their process. They had an in-house talent and they said, no, we will go with our own talent. But if I were to tell you probably the number one feed feedback that I've received about the book is consistently, why wasn't it read in your voice? Because we'd like to have listened to your stories through your voice. So hopefully the next book, the same mistake won't be made. But anyways, you probably could do it for this book even is my guess. Is, is that true? I think you I, mean, could. I don't, I don't think anything, anything's going to stop you from going to a studio and telling them to stop it out. And you know what? If people really want to hear from you, let them hear from you, Gad. That's what I say. Listen, given your business background, I think this is advice that I will seriously ponder and uh, perhaps put to good use. Uh, but anyways, to, just to finish the point about satire, you know, satirists uh, are probably the people that dictators hate the most, right? They don't hate the guys with the big muscles. They hate the guys with the big brains and the sharp tongues because if you could, I mean, the, the way you dismantle an ideology is to mock it into oblivion, right? And so oftentimes people who don't really understand the strategies that I use to try to persuade people say, but isn't it non-professorial to, to engage in satire? I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm very pragmatic. I want to try to uh, persuade as many people as I can. And so I'll go into my toolbox of persuasion strategies and I'll pull out whatever I can to hopefully reach you. So I love the fact that humor is part of your, you know, worldview. So I, I love that. I have a question for you about now, that, God, though. Sure, please. Go, go, go. You know, do you worry that – so there's many types of humor. Do you worry that sort of satirizing the other side, which you do in an entertaining way, right? So, so if people want to be entertained, your book is – your book hits entertained and enlightened at the same time. Your book is – for me, high on the list of, of books that can deliver both of those at the same time. But, Thank you. you know, if people really, if, 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 if your goal is to entertain and enlighten a lot of people, you did it. If your goal was to convince the other side, though, you really think that's the best way to do it? You know, this is something that I've struggled with for 30 plus years where I would have conversations with friends about some topic about, you know, Fidel Castro. And then I would use some satirical quip that will then get a defensive reaction out of that person. And so, so I'm, I'm well aware of, of exactly what you're saying. And I guess, you know, it's, you have to find the sweet spot. I mean, so it's, it's, I'm, 
you know, maybe I didn't succeed in doing that. Maybe I offended people that otherwise might have listened to me. Had I not used satire, we'll never know. But I mean, let me ask you this. Do you feel that some of the satire would have turned off the other side to a point that they would not have listened anymore to my message? Well, I think you'd have to ask someone on the other side to get an accurate answer. But if you want my opinion, I think the answer, if I'm being really honest, is maybe it might have, you know, it might have done that. And, and and maybe my book is going to do the same thing too. I, I, I say this about your book because I read your book after I had written mine and, and it sort of reflects an insecurity that I have about my own book too, is I, my actual goal is to not feed comfort food to the people who already agree with me, but to feed medicine to the people who don't and to be open to intellectual critique, not the kind of critique that I often, you know, hear uh, online or whatever, but, but actual intellectual critique that opens up the possibility of changing the way I think about something. Cause there's no greater gift that someone can give you than to force you to change the way you thought about something that was previously a firmly held belief of your own. There's no, I think, I I truly think there's no greater gift someone can give you than that. And so with that in mind, I I guess I I should say I wrote wrote my book, I read your book partway through writing my book or putting the finishing touches on it anyway. And I hope that's something that I did that I managed to do by the end. I don't know if I succeeded. I guess I'll have to get the reactions of people afterwards. I hope I did. But I think that it does come a little bit at the cost of, at the cost of having a coherent message that reaches the people who already agree with you, who need to be able to propagate the message for the purpose of driving the kind of change you want to see in the world. So, so it's a trade-off and it just, it just sort of depends on what your objectives are. But one of the things- I think if I were being introspective with complete humility, I don't think it's so much my humor and satire that might turn off the other side. It's, it, it's, I have a, a, a tenacity that if, if uh, feathered, uh, if ruffled inappropriately, all of my affable, jovial nature can turn into a tenacious honey badger. And sometimes that combativeness manifests itself in a public setting. And so then people focus on that tenacity and say, my God, I thought he was such a sweet guy and such a lovely, gracious guy until I saw that tweet. You know, And so then they anchor themselves on that tweet where, I mean, I didn't use swear words. I didn't uh, insult you, yeah. but I was very, very harsh in my rebuttal. Maybe those kinds of uh, rebuttals need to be tempered. I don't know about tempering. I'm not a fan of tempering. I guess... As you're talking through it, it occurs to me that it probably isn't your satire. It probably isn't your humor. And I don't even think it's your badger quality or your relentlessness. I don't even think it's that, actually. I think it's that you are you have a gift to be able to reason effectively with clarity. And I wonder whether the people against whom you are fighting your battle which in some ways overlaps in a big way with the the people who are on the other side of the intellectual battle that I'm waging are actually prone to be moved by reason of the kind that you bring. And and of course that sounds self-congratulatory to the side respective sides of the debate that we're each on to say that, Oh, our side is reason and and we can't come and say that. But I actually mean it like in a really authentic way here. 
I think that you might have well-intentioned people who may be more prone to change the way they think or exercise their reason if they're reached through a modality that for a moment goes outside I of reason. And I hear you. And you know, I, I, I love that we're having this kind of personal interaction because one of the things that I often tell people when they uh, they come to me and say, well, what are some tips that you might offer us you know, to be a successful author? One of the things I say to them is, have the humility to listen to feedback. So and here, let, let me explain what I mean by that. You know what, and you know now that you've written uh, this, this great, wonderful book, people go out and buy it now. Uh, look, if I write, so, so the, the parasitic mind, when I first submitted the, the, the first draft, it was about 20,000 words longer than the final version, okay? And my editor, the only major substantive request that he had, I mean, he had a little change of comma here, change this letter there, but the only substantive thing, I mean, he loved the book through and through. He said, this is too long. We want this book to be a book that, you know, when someone starts reading it, they can't put it down. Your current number of words is not going to accomplish this. And he said it, though, very gently because he knew that there was a likelihood that I might be quite resistant to that. Because you and I know, because you're an author now, you know how much you toiled over every syllable. You're asking me to take out 20,000 words? That, that took me maybe three months at a cafe <laughs> sitting and toiling about whether I should say the or a. Uh. So there's a humility for you to step back and say, yes, of course, I'm confident in my content. But I also know that there are people out there whose feedback is important. And so in, in the same way, listening to you offer me this unsolicited feedback, I must have the humility to have my ears open to well, it. I mean, I wouldn't so be dishonest with somebody who was unable to, uh, you know, or, or uninterested in in hearing it. So, I mean, you're, you're clearly an intellectual and you're committed to self-improvement in ways that, you know, kind of just came across from reading your book. And so that's why I'm taking the liberty that I am. But, yeah, okay. I think that, uh, you know, thank you for, I, I, you know, I, I, whenever I experience negative feedback, the first impulse I experience is still one of wanting to counter it or, or justify what my behavior is. And, and so that's just, I think, hardwired human nature. But I think that if you recognize that about yourself, it opens up possibilities to actually be improved by it. You know, what was your process? I think we have about maybe eight minutes. Yeah. Is that, does that sound Sounds great? Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was your process in writing your book? And before you answer it, usually the way I operate is I have a very, very tight, roadmap, uh, uh, an outline of where I want to go. And then it becomes an exercise of filling it. Now, of course, there are some organic changes. Now, my latest book is a lot more bottom up where I have a general outline, but not nearly as tight as for my previous books, because I don't know exactly where I'm going with each chapter. How was it for you? What was your process when you're writing this? Book? Yeah, well, my, I started probably last summer in earnest. And I thought I was going to be done by November uh, because really? I knew exactly what I wanted to say. So I just jam I would just get up in the morning, write in my notebook and outline, and then just sit down at my computer and start cranking, you know, just cranking with the ideas. So I had a finished product by November, you know, it got delayed by a week. Maybe it got, I needed to finish it up over Thanksgiving, but the deadline was in at the end of February. So I was like, okay, I, you know, I'm done a little early, but, but I kind of knew that I wanted to leave this space of those three months. And, and I was kind enough to get, it was about maybe seven smart people together 
uh, on a Zoom call who read the manuscript. And in mid-December, I told them to tear it to pieces. And they listened to me. <laughs> they, 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 they tore it to pieces. And it, it was an eight-chapter book with eight long chapters. One of the things that came out of it was that it, was, it became a 15-chapter book instead. And it wasn't just dividing the chapters by two. The whole thing got reshuffled. Some parts were a, a good chunk was just tossed out. Uh, a new missing section or two of substantial sections came in. And, and then it was a scramble. And then I, what I felt like at all the time in the world, then I felt like really you're like on an asymptote. The first 75% was, was the easiest. And I, the last 25% that I had to throw out, that I had to refill distributed throughout the book in ways that really met the untrodden territory that I hadn't covered was way harder than the, the first 75% that I got. In. So that was my process. Uh, I, I, I think, I think it, helped to go that in that direction because you know in some ways it's only after it's like breaking a bone you know it's only after you break the bone does it really heal with a strength that makes it less likely to break again and i kind of felt the same way the first time my book got broken and uh and and i, I think i think people will see what people think well i don't know if you read it tell me what you think but but i think it was stronger. i through it only in preparation for this thing but i will read it from cover to cover i promise cool. you that uh so have you been bitten by the writing bug in that you've written so you know as you said at the start of your interview once something is no longer fun i move 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 past it is this sufficiently fun that i want to try it again or i've written a book i'm moving on to new endeavors i'm going to become a bowling champion no it, it's maybe closer to the first than the second but i'm not quite in the i'm not quite in the bitten by a bug thing i uh you know when i feel an urge to write something down i'm writing it down uh, if it's if it's about a thousand words i'll send it to the wall street journal uh which has happened twice this year or thrice and they've they they've you know published there a couple or or, or similar publication and i'll put it out there some of the stuff i just keep to myself some of it goes in the trash and yeah i think that i think that i probably enjoy it enough to have another book come out of me and i think that's going to be the sequel to woke ink you know where i leave off with in the last chapter is is a question that ponders what i think is the real solution if you will to the problem of woke capitalism and just say wokeism more broadly is that what we need to do isn't to cancel this ideology in return by adopting its methods it's sort of like fighting terrorism if you just adopt a terrorist's methods in return you just join his church under a different name I think the same goes with respect to practicing cancel culture against even the dangerous ideologies underlying the woke movement. But I do think the harder and more important work is to fill the moral void that wokeism fills with far more substantial fare, that we are hungry for a purpose and hungry for identity and hungry for meaning. That's a good thing. But I think we live in a moment where a lot of the things that used to fill that moral void have receded in contemporary life, which is part of what makes wokeism so appealing. It's what I think of as the modern equivalent of our opium for the masses. And I think what we need to do- So is that, is that sorry to interrupt you, is that what drove, the, there's one chapter I noticed and I quickly bruised through it, wokeism as a form of religious practice. Yeah, there's actually right? two so chapters. Like one, is, one chapter is called, wokeism is like a religion. And then there's another 
chapter right after that says actually wokeism is literally a religion uh, and the second chapter right. is about why it meets the supreme court's legal test for religion which has profound legal implications for the cases that could be brought against companies and schools that are propagating this the first is more of a cultural inquiry but it actually was the basis for the final chapter of the book which is titled who are we and i think that that's a question of who we are as individuals and who we are as a people I can't remember a time in my life where we more badly needed an answer to that question. And I personally think that our absence of an answer to that question, at least in America today, is the black hole at the center of our nation's soul. And when you have a vacuum that runs that deep, that's when idea pathogens like what wokeism represents start to fill that void. And so the next book uh, will offer a theory of, of how we might fill that moral void with more substantial fare that doesn't defeat wokeism by canceling it, but may defeat wokeism by diluting it to irrelevance. I love it. I mean, you, you're, you're, in a sense, you're in a, the nightmare for the woke folks because, you know, you are the brown person, so you should think a certain way and you come from the Ivy League. And in a similar way, I too am a nightmare because it's hard to come after me you know, as a white supremacist, because I'm the Lebanese. You're a very know, curious uh, breed of white supremacist, if you are, you know. Exactly, exactly. I've been called, by the way, I mean, this is literally true. I was canceled from speaking with Jordan Peterson at a, a university, Ryerson University in Ontario, Canada. And one of the things that they accused us of was that we were neo-Nazis. So I was the Lebanese Jew who was apparently a neo-Nazi. Not a very logical stance to take, but there you have it. Any last, because I'm, I want to be very mindful of your time, uh, any projects other than your, your next book, the part two of Woke Inc., that you would like to use this small platform to maybe give us a glimpse into? Well, uh, sure, just for fun, not in a way that I don't think, uh, it certainly doesn't benefit me and may not benefit your listeners, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll offer anyway. You know, I'm kind of using this as a period of exploration to engage in the kinds of activities that I haven't been able to indulge as much as I'd like over the last, you know, period of 15 years of becoming an investor and then building a company. And I went to law school along the way while I had a full-time job as an investor at a hedge fund. So I've kind of just been on a, on a race that didn't provide a lot of, a lot of latitude for indulging some of my other, some of my other interests. So I've been involved in starting some other enterprises that that tackle problems that go outside of biotech. So one of them is a company called Chapter that I co-founded uh, a couple of years ago. It seems to be you know really doing really well today, and you know I'm on the board or whatever. But you know, Chapter's tackling a different issue that I think might be another one of the underappreciated issues of our time, which is what do we do once we're done with our careers, right? So, so life is structured first through go through education and then you get a job and then you retire and then what? We have this thing called retirement where, you know, my parents are going through it and, you know, maybe you probably know a lot of people who are going through it. What does it mean? It doesn't have a coherent narrative in the same way that the first two chapters of your life did. And so chapters yeah. contemplating that question. What does that third chapter, or, or maybe it's not even three chapters. Maybe there's more than three chapters. What does the next chapter look like? And that was a question that, that deeply uh, 
I don't want to say bothered me, but deeply won my curiosity at least and bothered me a little bit because I think we've done such a poor job of answering that question as a society precisely at a time when more people than ever are entering that, that phase of their life. And so it was, it was great to work with another entrepreneur at a younger phase of his career who's the CEO of the company to be able to actualize a vision that tried to author a narrative for what that third chapter, that next chapter of life ought to look like with the content of a vision that was more meaningful than deciding to move to Florida and hit white balls in a nameless direction, which is what version 1.0 of that vision entailed. So, so in chapter still in its early days as a company has started to focus on helping older people make complicated decisions like, you know, Medicare plan selection in the U S but that's just sort of the beginning of, of hopefully a much broader vision that that company realizes. So, so that was, that'd be something that I call out. I'm playing more tennis now. I'm, I'm an avid tennis fan and, uh, wow. and I enjoy playing tennis. I'm a father. That's, that's been just life changing in all the ways that everyone said it was going to be. And that I rolled my eyes when people used to say it, but man, they were right. And then some, and I, uh, I, it's really just made me view the experience of life in a very different way. And I'm, I'm really enjoying the chance to spend time with him. We've had an unusual year, right? In the world, COVID lockdowns, all that, but in a way with some blessing in disguise that came with it for me was spending time with him in a way that, uh, that I might not have been able to do before. And, and, you know, beyond that, leaving the possibilities open for, for discovering what else I, uh, I might enjoy doing beyond the things that I've already done in my life. Well, I love your attitude, man. I love your entrepreneurial spirit. I love that you're a Renaissance man. You're the type of guy that we should all be trying to emulate. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Vivek. We will say goodbye officially offline. Thank you so much for coming on. Great chatting with you. Thanks, Kat.